0: Uh, so, Megan is, as we've already been, if you've been on for the last few minutes, is the Associate Minister at Cemetery Road uh, Baptist Church in Sheffield. She's also doing a PhD through Northern Baptist College in the University of Manchester. Uh, Megan was down to speak last year, but things m- made it difficult to do that. So, we're really pleased that you're able to come and uh, bring a paper to us this year. And we look forward to hearing what you've got to say. Megan, over to you.
1: Well, thanks for having me back. I was worried. <laughs> offended everybody by having to quit last minute. Um, Just a word of caution, my children will arrive home (laughs) at any moment. So I'm hoping nothing too embarrassing happens. But thank you so much for hanging in here um, past four. I hope you have a good cup of tea, great chat, and let's get started. So my paper that I am talking about is um, called Baptist Ecclesiology and the Necessary Virtue of Obedience. So how this is gonna work out is that I'm gonna start by talking about what a virtue is. Um, I can't see faces right now because of the way the Zoom call has gone, but usually when I mention virtues to people, whether it's at church or, you know, the BA students I've taught before, there's this glazed look <laughs> because, and rightfully so, that goes over people's faces. So don't worry, I'll explain it. Um, but also what is, after that, what is the virtue of obedience? And what on earth does that have to do with Baptist ecclesiology? Where does it fit in? So let's get started with what a virtue is. Simply put, and of course, there's almost a sin in oversimplifying, a virtue is an excellent character trait. It is an excellent character trait, which when the possessor has it, it makes the person more excellent. So, and that helps them towards their telos or their end goal for us as Christians, we would say that our good, the excellence that we're perfecting in, is becoming more Christ-like and becoming members of the kingdom of God, becoming better citizens. So it's an excellent character trait. Now, what exactly that means and how that excellence is parsed out has been debated forever. I'm not gonna go over that. I'm just gonna get to my definition and move on. But if you're very interested, and I hope you are, Heather Baddeley's book on virtue is excellent. Read it, email me, we'll have tea and chats during the pandemic over it. But my definition of an excellent character trait or virtue is a trait which involves the, the person's motivations and those corresponding actions. So an excellent character trait has good motivations and good corresponding actions which do not necessarily mean that these actions come to fruition, whether that's because of bad luck as it's called in virtue ethics, but I would unpack that a bit more and say we're Let me give you an example in case I've just lost you. So for example, a just person who has the excellent character trait of justice has just motivations internally. And they correspond those motivations with just actions as is appropriate to their context. But this doesn't necessarily mean that they have accomplished those just actions that their justice has come to fruition. Um, Heather Baddeley gives the perfect example of Malala who's um, just recently graduated from Oxford but started off in Pakistan. She has these great character traits of being just courageous and benevolent in her Um, pursual of a better education for girls in Pakistan, even though she has not yet been able to achieve that goal. We do not want to take from Malala that she is less just somehow because she hasn't done it yet. So that's one aspect of it. That is what the character trait is. It is the internal motivations, the corresponding actions of those motivations without them necessarily coming to fruition. The second aspect of what a virtue is is found in something called the Aristotelian golden mean. Now the golden mean is understood that the virtue, the excellent character trait is equally found between its corresponding deficiency and excess. Um, A common way of thinking about this and Aristotle uses it is that um, character trait of courage. So courage being setting out to do something seeing the obstacles, the potentially painful things that are going to happen when you try to accomplish it and, can, and going anyway. Obviously a deficiency of courage is cowardice. We know that, but an excessive of this is um, brashness. And so you have to find the mean between those. How do you do that? Well, in virtue ethics, there's, especially in the Greek thought, this understanding of phronesis, practical wisdom. And that's nice and all, but I actually agree with Paul Fittis that the best way of talking about it might be the Hebrew term of chokmah. Don't know if I have enough um, phlegm built up for that, but like chokmah, Um, but chokmah is wisdom. It's what Solomon asked for when he became king. It's the lady wisdom who sings in Proverbs and entices us to come with her and live a good life. It's also a skill which is why I think it fits better. So in Exodus um, tw- 35, when they're building the tabernacle, the individuals that are building the tabernacle use hokma to do it, wisdom, skill. So we use this skill, which is given to us by God through the Holy Spirit, I would say, to help us understand and practice these virtues. So let me give you a final example on this one. Um, Let's say going with um, courage again, that you are a pastor and you're in a church where there's multiple cultures, such as what I have at Cemetery Road. We have Iranians, we have, um, so the Farsi community, we have Kurdish, we have Congolese, we have English fellowship groups, and there's other cultures in there too, but those are the predominant ones. If I were to go into one of those fellowship groups and need to say, so sorry, but this activity you're doing is a safeguarding violation, so it must stop. Part of courage is having that inward motivation of doing what is right, while seeing (laughs) the issues that are going to pop up, regardless of the culture, but also appropriately acting in the context of those cultures to deal with the different painful things that'll come at you, shame, blame, denial, different things for different cultures. Nevertheless, the virtue is the same and you find that through practice, through chokla. Last bit on what a virtue is, I promise, is exemplars. Part of learning to practice, part of learning our skill is looking to an exemplar to understand that. Um, We need, as Aristotle points out, we need Um, virtuous people to imitate and practice our actions and our motivations for. So I hope you're still there. Um, What is the virtue of obedience? So obedience is defined um, as the willing offering of one's will to another. So it's not simply giving, like submitting your will to another. It's willingly do so, at least according to Aquinas. Now, I don't agree with Aquinas on everything, but when it comes to virtues, it's been 800 years and he has a pretty good (laughs) definition still. And we've inherited his, his understanding of these definitions throughout Christian tradition. But for Aquinas, it's not merely that you submit your will to an authority figure, this is part of it, but also to a friend. Submitting your will to one another, obeying your friend actually leads To good friendship for Aquinas and even if you combine that with the authority aspect of it to friendship with God so obedience is very important to Aquinas and I would say to us as well obviously because I wrote a paper on it but the golden mean for obedience obviously the deficiency of it is disobedience but the excess of it which we as Baptists and I'll discuss this more later are aware of the excess of it is subservience The Oxford creed of 1679 mentions that the problem with an excess of obedience is that it violates a person's freedom of conscience, which is incredibly important to us. And the exemplar for obedience is Christ. Through his temptation, through his passion experience, through his entire ministry, Jesus is the perfect example of obedience for us. As John fifteen ten says, Jesus's relationship to the Father is the model for believers. And we are enabled through his example and the Holy Spirit to follow in obedience just as he did. And that as opposed to Adam, Jesus's obedience is redemptive for mankind. So what on earth does this have to do with Baptist ecclesiology? In Baptist ecclesiology, um, I feel that more often than not, because we come from a history of dissenters and nonconformists, we have an awful lot to say about um, the excess of obedience in the sense that as we saw in the Oxford creed, we can overdo it. But are we deficient in it? That's kind of the question I've been pondering and thinking about when I've been writing this. So for um, Steve Harmon, he looks at the authority. What is the authority in Baptist life that we should submit ourselves to? Um, He has two sources of authority. One is theological, God, and scripture. A second one is um, ecclesiological source, um, which is the gathered congregation, the priesthood of all believers. Now, obviously with a theological source obeying God, um, I'm not sure you can get an excess in that, but there isn't a sense in Baptist um, writings and tradition that there is such a thing as maybe inappropriately obeying scripture, having instead of solo scripture, a a tenant of Protestant Reformation and Baptist life as well, you get to sola scripture uh, and this understanding of just me and Jesus and just my interpretation of scripture, um, which is a sin against the community. But there's also the ecclesiological sources how you try to explain to someone why we ordain people in a priesthood of all believers is an excellent question, which I'm going to look at now. The Baptist tradition does ordain ministers, does have trustees elected in the local congregation, because though we are gathered together And we together through worship, both in our worship services and in the church meeting, discern the will of God, we still need a head person, an overseer, an an Episcopal, to come in and help us to hear the voice of God, people who are gifted, and out of their giftedness of understanding the voice of God and the will of God, out of their service to us, we trust them. They have authority through our trust in them, through their character, which involves their own obedience to God. So we as Baptists, unlike other Denominations, other brothers and sisters in Christ, and the way they organize, we do not have a magistrate. We do not have a bishop. We have an overseer who I appreciate that Paul Fittis has pointed this out. Um, It's not just that we together discern their giftedness, but we also together discern when their giftedness has ceased. And we should together in relationships to think about the obedience as an act of friendship. We should help one another when things don't go right. Accountability is a huge part of trust. So also um, part of what a minister is trusted to do is to connect us with the wider church. So in the same way that you have a gathering of believers that come together in the local church with their freedom of will, um, freedom of conscience, and out of that you have a pastor when churches gather together, you have also organizations that come out of that. So think regional ministers, the union, the Baptist world alliance, ecumenical, etc. From here on out, when I refer to that, it'll be union just because it's easier. I don't want to go <laughs> through all the names every time. So what does obedience look like? I've already alluded to it a bit, but a bit more clearly, what does obedience as a virtue look like within Baptist ecclesiology? Well, for us, A huge factor is Christ's exemplar. We enter into this community through obedience and baptism, and we have obedience regularly and the Lord's Supper, and we obediently look to the faith through scripture and through the community to grow as people of God. There's also obedience to the pastor and to other um, officers and trustees, which I've kind of mentioned before. But again, this is heavily dependent upon their trustworthiness to help us to hear the truth. Within philosophy, (laughs) um, there's this understanding that especially for religious authority, you have to have someone that you can see as trustworthy for truth. This can be someone that is trustworthy as an expert or someone who's trustworthy as an advisor to help you figure out what the truth is. I would argue that within the Baptist understanding of Pastor's overseer. You have both of those combined. There's some sense that they're an expert, and, and this is why we're going through r- religious training, but there's also a sense that they are guide. Um, and this is their truthfulness, their trustworthiness, their authority is regular regularly confirmed when believers gather together to worship and discern God's will. Now, so when those churches get together, though, and they relate to higher institutions. There is a sense of obedience there too, in the same way that the pastor needs to be trustworthy. And that's why we submit our will to them. We listen to what they're saying. Also challenge it, need B. That same relationship should carry over when we have oversight, whether it's regional ministers or union. However, The bigger the institution gets, the harder it is to have a similar, transparent, trustworthy relationship um, for those who are gathered within it. So what on earth do we do about this? Why am I thinking about this? Well, a lot has been written about the character of the minister, about what makes them trustworthy, and rightfully so. About a year ago at the NAMS conference in Manchester, Jonathan Talon, when talking about issues that pastors will face uh, with boundaries, mentioned that back in the day when we became priests or nuns, we took the orders of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And similarly, when ministers tend to stumble and get themselves into trouble to lose their trustworthiness, it's on areas of money sex and power. We've talked a lot about how ministers as overseers should have good character. I'm wondering if we need to start talking more about how the union, how the regional ministers have a trustworthy relationship. Interestingly, when I looked at the constitutions on Bugbee's website, of course I picked union because it's easier. I noticed how Bugby has a church constitution outline, which it's put together with the charity commission for churches. And in that, there is talk of alliance with Bugby and being in good relationship with them and ministers needing to be accredited ministers who are still on the accreditation list. But when you look at the at Bugby's constitution, there's far less discussion of Bugby's relationship to the churches. Now, I know it's a pandemic. Now might not be the time to relook at everything that Bubby does. Certainly not ask them to do more. But I think that there's something here. Maybe we should talk about obedience, not just obedience as disciples towards friendship with one another as we pursue a life that honors Christ in the kingdom, but how that looks when churches relate to one another. So, That is essentially what I thought about when I've been reading um, about Baptist ecclesiology. I've wondered if in focusing on the excess of obedience for the sake of liberty of conscience, have we lost an appropriate understanding of proper obedience and in that um, lost um, or gained an excessive view of liberty? So thank you for your time.
0: Megan, thank you for that very stimulating uh, paper, which uh, opens up a whole set of questions about what it is to be Baptist and relate to uh, wider Baptist life and everything else. Um, someone called Paul Goodliffe uh, has Never a Never heard of him. <laughs> Paul, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question? Briefly, uh, so my um, question is a- about the relationship of early Baptists and their their memory of, of monastic life, and the way in which uh, I think it's Nigel Wright argues that what early Baptists sought to be were, were were small monastic gathered communities of people who they're no longer looking to the monks and nuns of the elite ordinary believers uh, gathered out of the uh, the rather m- m- more godless context um, and um, how might that virtue of obedience be balanced out with with the uh, requirements of compassion and love imposed upon the abbot in the order of some you know the, the rule of St uh, Benedict and how might that in a gathered church be cashed out in ways other than willing obedience to the pastor.
1: Okay. So just to make sure that I understand, just to repeat it back, to make sure I got your question. Um, You're asking in a monastic understanding, especially one that follows the rule, St. Benedict, how does, what does obedience look like in the community? So that's a great question. Thanks for asking that. Some of that is in friendship. And the good friendship. So Aquinas talks about the good friendship being when because of care for one another and care for each other growing in what he calls virtue, I would call faith as well as virtue. We submit our wills to one another. And this looks like helping each other out, maybe doing something that we necessarily don't want to do, but for love, love of one another, we submit to it out of love and care.
0: Okay. Um, Ruth has a question.
2: Thank you, Megan. That was a really interesting and thought-provoking discussion. Um, sometimes um, Baptists don't always know what we think until someone says a word that seems to not fit. And I think probably obedience is one of those. Um, we're quite disobedient, actually, we're, you know, we're dissenting. And so my question um, is about how how the how a value of obedience fits with our sense of being independent in the local setting and also interdependent with each other. So how does interdependence and obedience sit together?
1: Okay, I'm, I'm writing this down, <laughs> so I don't forget it. I have pandemic brain. So, right, so the virtue of obedience, how does this fit not only in our relationship with state magistrates, you could say, but also within our interdependency with each other. Is that yes. correct? Okay, so some of this is um, context and using hokma to understand the balance. The context of dealing with a state magistrate, which we do, and this is throughout the confessions too, we obey them to a point. Um, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham prison, who's, he's also a, a Baptist minister, is a great example of this. We will obey magistrates to a point until it hinges upon um, our conscience, our freedom of conscience, especially our chief understanding that we're citizens of the kingdom of God. And how that looks for our inner relationship with one another is a different context. We are in the same kingdom and we are, have the same values we're going towards the same goals this is where a church mission and vision statement is actually helpful too because you can look at it and say look this is who we are as a people how we go about these goals together so you come together to submit to one another in love which also looks like obeying one another's wills or submitting your will to someone else's will but also in worship and in discerning together the will of christ so you can practice it together
0: Okay, thank you for that. Uh, I've got a question from John Cowell. Hi there, thank you ever so much, Megan. Um, Just looking back to see what I said. My simplicity, fidelity, and accountability be a post monastic memory of poverty, chastity, and
1: obedience. Okay, I'm going to have to look up your quote. (laughs) Recognizing
0: that we we are not monks and nuns, that we don't live in that community, that of our poverty and certainly of our chastity might be tricky for some of us. Um, Can we sort of have that post-monastic memory of these things represented in those ways?
1: Yes, I guess my follow up question would be what would that look like? So, uh, sure, accountability is a part of obedience. You're, s- instead of the minister as magistrate mm. um, enacting authority, accountability comes into a mutual submission to one another's wills. Exactly. Obviously, uh, yes. Um, but I guess my follow-up <laughs> question would be, do you think we do that though?
0: I'm tempted to say that's why some of us started the Order of the Baptist Ministry. <laughs> 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 and we'll leave what one hanging there uh, we've still got time for a couple more questions so there's another one from Helen Johnson sorry sorry just on, on finding myself um, yeah do we need to look more at mutual accountability so my husband is a pastor and i've been in baptist churches a long time and i have seen several pastors being run out of the church by either the deacons or a powerful clique who have done this on repeated occasions but nobody has the authority to discipline them whereas the pastor is under authority and therefore gets disciplined or moved as the easiest option um so you're talking about obedience for pastors and within a higher context, but do we need to look at it more in terms of within a congregational context as well?
1: Yes, absolutely, thank you. I would define what you're, cause I've seen this as well, where a deacon or treasurer is strong arming a minister um, and there's even cliques working against the minister that um, could be a prophetic voice if done appropriately, according to obedience. But it could also be a deficiency of obedience which is um kind of equivalent to an excess of um liberty of conscience so absolutely this is one of the reasons why as a baptist minister i like looking at virtue ethics and as a balance between the two things is because you can see churches on the spectrum where one is incredible like you have one pastor who's incredibly authoritarian inappropriately so, and another where they don't have any. So if we start talking about an appropriate understanding or a proper understanding of virtues like obedience, we can meet in the middle and work it out and work together towards um, submitting our wills to the will of God.
0: We've got time for one more. Um, We're going to have Deb Stammers Uh, has got a question.
2: Oh, mine wasn't really a question. It was more of a comment. I was just reflecting because I used to be a social worker um, and I was just really interested in what you're saying about um, accountability. Um, And I've just found moving from a hierarchical sort of context where it was very clear, your sort of line of, of accountability to being a pastor in the last couple of years, just really quite confusing for me and and particularly when some of these safeguarding issues come up and as a social worker you know people expect me to know what to do <laughs> but I've you know but but actually in, in a in the context of being a pastor it just seems so much more complicated than in social services where you just know exactly who you're accountable to and where that authority comes from um so yeah I was just reflecting on that really sorry it wasn't really a question
1: No, you're absolutely right. Um, This is where, because as a minister, I find myself in that position too, when I have to go into the Congolese and say one thing or go into the Farsi and say another. This is where I would say that we as pastors need good friends, good, trustworthy friends that can hold us accountable at the very least. And hopefully your treasurer or trustees do that. But if not, that's where uh, making fellow minister friends who are going to call you on it and hold you accountable is is helpful. Because unfortunately, if the church life is not healthy enough, where you're discerning the will of God together, you as pastor need someone to help you discern the will of God outside of that. So I completely hear you on that one, especially when it comes to safeguarding stuff.
0: Okay, Um, Megan, thank you for a very rich paper, which has generated lots of questions. We look forward to you uh, continuing the work that you're doing, your research work, and for seeing it hopefully uh, in some form in the future. Um, I think you opened some load of questions about life in the church, but also very much life uh, between our churches and association and union. Uh, It did take me back to a little book that um, some of the college principals wrote uh, in 1997 called On the Way of Trust. Uh, And that language Mm. of trust that you talked about is vital. And we might ask the question is whether there is enough trust at the moment between us as churches, within our churches and within our union. But I will leave. Absolutely.